0: I think ultimately what I brought and what the value that I really brought to CircleCI from the very first day of being a security engineer here were solid instincts around right and wrong.
1: Hi, you're listening to The Secure Developer. It's part of the My DevSecOps community, a platform for developers, operators and security people to share their views and practices on DevSecOps, Dev and Sec collaboration, cloud security and more. Check out mydevsecops.io to join the community and find other great resources. This podcast is sponsored by Sneak. Sneak is a dev first security company helping companies fix vulnerabilities in open source components and containers without slowing down development. To learn more, visit sneak.io. On today's episode, Guy Pajani, president and co founder of Sneak, talks to Tad Whitaker. Prior to his engineering career, Tad was a licensed private investigator, newspaper reporter, and gold miner. He's now a security engineer at CircleCI and a core member of the Bay Area OWASP leadership that hosts bi-monthly security meetups in San Francisco. Outside of work, you'll find him volunteering with a number of different organizations, including the Wall of Sheep at Defcon, Mission Bit, Telegraph Academy, and the San Francisco Youth Baseball League.
2: Hello everybody. Thanks for tuning back in to uh, the Secure Developer. We have another great episode for you today. We have uh, one of the more modern dev tooling companies represented here today uh, with uh, Tad Whitaker, who is the security engineering manager at Circle. Thanks for joining the show, Tad:
0: Hi, thanks for having me on.
2: So Tad, you know I like to ask this for every guest that comes on the show, but you've got a, an especially interesting answer <laughs> to do it. Can you tell us a little bit like the story of how you got? into this role that you have, and then we'll dig into what that role is, but just what was that journey that got you uh, to security as a whole and this role specifically?
0: Sure. So I'm the head of security here at Circle, and I have been in that position since I more or less started at Circle three and a half years ago. I was our first formal security engineer, and I came off the support desk after about six months. But I think I started at circle when I was 40 and that was my first tech job. I do have kind of an unconventional background. I grew up with a lot of, I would say I was kind of steeped in bad behavior growing Mm -hmm. up, just some of my relatives and and whatnot. Um, And that's always just been like the dark side of human behavior has always been something that's just been around me growing up. Mm -hmm. And when I was in college, I The very first thing that I had declared as a major was computer science because I heard Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails had the same computer that I did. And this was in 1994. And they said, you can study anything. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds pretty cool. I want to learn more about my machine. I dropped out after three days because the University of Wyoming where I went put me in like senior level calculus and a couple of things like that. And literally within three days, it was obvious I was going to get straight F's and fail out of college <laughs> if I didn't go do something else. Yeah. So that was the first time that I tried to get into computers back in Before. 94. But then I transferred over and became a journalism major. And I wanted to be an investigative reporter at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, in particular, those two. So I finished up journalism school and moved out here to the Bay Area and was a reporter here in the Bay Area primarily up in Marin County and I tended to cover a lot of investigative and hard-hitting things. I covered San Quentin and I watched a couple of executions there and I did a lot of investigative work around like gun ownership in Marin County which is sort of surprising given how liberal it is, but I always liked the I guess the conflict around the job. And so after about eight years of that, it was obvious that there wasn't a lot of future in investigative reporting for somebody who had a six month old kid at home. And so I left that and went to work for a short only hedge fund manager. He liked to hire former reporters who would dig into companies and help him discover malfeasance. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then the financial crisis happened and that guy made a fortune in the middle of that and then just had no more work for me. And so there I was with a little kid at home and everything and nowhere to get a job. And so I applied to the state of California to get my private investigator's license and got that and just started cold calling lawyers and other hedge funds and big private investigation agencies, I had to do something. So that actually led to me starting and running my own PI practice that went on for about eight years. It was great. I had a full-time lawyer working for me and an accountant. and I really ran it like an agency with lots of contractors. And we had, we worked on big things that most people have heard about and read about in the news. Mm-hmm. But after about six years of that, I started really getting interested in the technology behind bad behavior. And it's not that I wanted to use hacking tools in my job, but understanding how somebody could bring a website down as a 13-year-old was something I needed to know about. And so I started learning about just hacking tools and went to my first OWASP meetup here in the Bay Area. And I remember being blown away at how accessible that little community was. Like I went in and the guy leading it, there were maybe 50 people there, but the guy leading the meeting was the chief information security officer at Twitter. And that blew me away that that guy was just standing there with a slice of pizza and a beer in his hand and would sit there and talk to me for a half an hour. And so one thing led to another, and that was right when boot camps became a big thing and so, on a whim, I just enrolled in a Python boot camp that started like a week later, and that program was actually kind of garbage because I didn't really know how to teach it. but as soon as I was done with that, I thought, oh, I'm going to go back to my p i practice and I can you know write some scraping tools or whatever." but I was hooked with the technology, and so I actually wound up. Shutting down my PI practice and handing everything off and going back to do a second boot camp called Hack Reactor. That one was legit. That was one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. And that's how I landed at CircleCI. And then it didn't take very long for our CTO to realize that I was the guy who sent himself to DEFCON and did all this stuff and, you know, I had a hacking machine that was sitting on my desk and, you know, he said, you know, we really need somebody like you just focused on helping customers and pointing out things that none of us are aware of. So.
2: And that's how you got into the security role in there. Yeah, but that's like an incredible story. Like you know, oftentimes in the world of uh, startups and I guess kind of growth companies as a whole, uh, the whole notion of resilience and kind of a variety of background is kind of touted. You know, and you know how do you know it? And then like the story you just outlined is a is quite a kind of a, a broad perspective uh, on it. Do you feel you know like having kind of gone through this journey and you know clearly it got you to the point you know of where you are? But how much do you feel your Kind of the skills built during this, you know, sort of journalism and PI type work, how much, if at all, does it manifest in your sort of security engineering type role?
0: A lot. Even though being a newspaper reporter isn't the same as being a penetration tester for the NCC group for 10 years before I started here, I think ultimately what I brought and what the value that I really. Brought to Circle CI from the very first day of being a security engineer here were solid instincts around right and wrong and what looks good and what looks bad. And I know one of the things that really helped shape that a long time ago was the very first reporter job I had. I actually covered the California energy crisis in around 2000. And what was going on there with Everybody missing power here in the Bay Area and everything, it literally did not make sense. Like two and two did not add up to four. And the regulators didn't understand it and everything. And then about six months into it, I went to see the CEO of Enron speak at the California Commonwealth Club. And here was this master of the universe. He was the CEO, you know, former McKinsey guy. He's the CEO of the seventh most valuable company on the world. He had just been paid like $160 million in stock that year. You know, I was looking at a literal Lord of the universe. And that guy stood up in front of the Commonwealth Club and just lied to everyone. And we know it was lying because about six weeks later is when that whole house of cards collapsed. And as soon as all that happened, for a lot of us who had been in the middle of it there was just this like forehead slapping oh my god we were actually not wrong and that's always been this really big oh kind of perspective shaping yeah, kind of validation experience. of
2: uh, trust your instincts that moment
0: good behavior and doing the right thing and understanding motivation and why people might do things is not that complicated uh, to this day I still actually drink my tea out of an Enron coffee mug that I bought back then. (laughs) Like that sits right on my desk every single day.
2: That's awesome. As a fresh reminder for uh, a different type of adversary, I guess, if you think of it that way.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so where that comes into play here at Circle is, you know, I have to help secure our product and I have to provide trust to our customers so that they have faith that, you know, they can trust us with source code and the secrets to their production environments and Their builds, but I also need to make sure that our company as a whole is secure inside for our employees too. And so, you know, I really do kind of straddle both of those. And when I first started, we didn't have an HR person, we didn't have an IT person, and we didn't have a lawyer. And it was almost like as soon as they sent out the email naming me as like that, you know, the first security engineer, there were just all these Slack pings. Where all people jobs started, that
2: weren't being done, you know? Yes, where
0: people started reporting all these things that were inappropriate or wrong or whatever, or that needed to be fixed. And so that's really where it started. And it was just really about trying to follow my gut.
2: So, well, this is like, I can probably sort of dig into the story a whole lot more, but let's kind of switch it deep to sort of this reality of Circle. So maybe let's start <laughs> from the end a little bit. So you run, you know, the sort of security engineering group. Tell us a little bit about like how. What does it look like? You know, what's the structure of the team? How many rough people? You know, how do you divide responsibilities?
0: So right now, I report to security is underneath the chief technology officer, Rob Zuber. And one year ago, it was Rob and me and another security engineer named Tito. And Tito is a staff security engineer. He used to be a backend engineer. He's very code Super technical and savvy, lots of experience. And so I tended to handle a lot of the softer aspects, and Tito was the technical wing of our little pair. And about a year ago, we hired a VP of platform from Puppet. He's an awesome guy named Mike Stonkey. And Stonkey had been the very first security engineer at Puppet. And he helped scale security up and then SRE. And, you know, he definitely was one of the people who really helped scale puppet. And so he came here and he immediately interviewed me. And after that freed up four job wrecks, we were stretched pretty thin about a year ago. And so at the time he got a compliance person hired and a couple of security engineers who are coders by nature, And then he also brought over a manager from Puppet to just kind of help gel everything. So right now I have four people who report to me and I report to that other manager from Puppet. But right now, you know, we've got somebody who's basically dedicated to compliance and kind of security analysis, sort of triage. And then three people, three security engineers who right now all wear sort of the same hat it's still a little reactive but they're primarily dedicated to product security some incident response and a fair amount of ops work that we have right now like around vulnerability management and intrusion detection that all kind of came out of our SOC 2 and fedramp compliance
2: got it okay so it's interesting it's actually like it's a good both the title and the kind of the makeup of the team you know it's an engineering team it's sort of a tools Mm -hmm. providers or sort of you know like technical software oriented people in that group and how does this work how does this group you know how does your group work with development like you mentioned for instance like vulnerability management or you know sort of intrusion detection when do you engage with development how do you manage responsibilities between you and the dev teams and also maybe give us a a rough sense of size of like you told us the size of the engineering team but what's the rough size of the dev of the engineering organization as a whole
0: i think we have 75 engineers and we have i know like as a whole we have basically one security engineer to every 50 people at circle ci and i know that's a pretty good ratio Mm -hmm. I saw a Slack thread a little while ago where a whole bunch of kind of CISOs were asked what their security engineer to headcount ratio was. And most people kind of fell in the one to 100 to 150. The best one was, I think, one to every 25 employees, which seemed really incredible. But so right now we're at about one to 50. But as far as like devs, I think we have 75 engineers.
2: Okay, cool. So we've got, yeah, and I agree that's kind of a good ratio and actually like an even better ratio when you think about how that relates to the engineering side, sort of, you know mm-hmm. to like engineers. So how do you work kind of, you know, how do you collaborate with those 75 folks?
0: I'm lucky that the concept and value of security here among our engineering department is largely something I inherited. There were maybe 20 engineers full time when i started and just given the nature of what circle ci does you know we are that literal last inch before your valuable intellectual property goes into production and so we have access to that ip and that code and we also have the skeleton keys to your environment and so The architecture and the way that Circle was set up, even before I got here, had to be done with security at the front of every decision. So that really does come from our chief technology officer down, and it was largely something that I didn't have to build. So, And the way that I had to work it initially, I was the only security engineer for the first year and a half. And a lot of what I wound up doing was around people security and not product security because we had done such a good job instilling the value of secure development. And so a lot of the work that I did was always just distributed through management initially. And that's really the culture here. It's security's job is not to fix things, It's to influence everybody else's decisions. So like with vulnerability management, Mm when we had to set that up with our FedRAMP authorization, Tito set up a service using Twistlock and his service generates JIRA tickets that go out and automatically assign tickets to every single dev team that uses a particular image that might have a vulnerability in it. So that's really all up to developers for patching. Like We don't handle any of that. We maintain the service, but we do literally no patching.
2: That's a, like, I love the sort of the direct relationship. And I guess, how do you handle the tracking of that? Like, does that still sit in your team of like knowing whether developers do that or is even the sort of the tracking or the monitoring a part of the sort of the dev kind of quality metrics, if you will?
0: Tito is the one who has historically been in charge of monitoring that just because he's the one who's the closest to it. Um, He also tends to sit in like the delivery meetings and that type of stuff with the tech leads for all those various development teams. And so he's the one who's done a lot of the hounding on that. But that's actually something that our compliance person is gonna wind up taking over eventually. Because one of the things that FedRAMP is actually requiring us to do now is to upload monthly vulnerability scan results that show what we scanned, how quickly they were patched. And we've got that automated to a point that Tito just doesn't need to be doing that anymore.
2: Got it. Okay. So it's being tracked automatically, but sort of the, I guess the governance activity or the collection of that data is still a security team yeah. set up or like investment. Yeah. I guess the cycles were on your team to yep. sort of, you know, get that done. You know, it's it's awesome to sort of hear that the direct flow and people kind of pick up the problem for there. Is there any activity that happens, you know, whether by you or by the dev teams to kind of, you know, celebrate folks that did that well? Like, you know, sort of the people that have fixed the vulnerability or something?
0: We haven't done anything. That's actually a great suggestion. We haven't done anything around celebrating. We have some teams who are militant about fixing their vulnerabilities and some that are slow. And I guess I would be a little hesitant to call out the ones that are so great without, I don't want to shame anybody. Yeah, But we do have kind of like some more security championship stuff. Like my girlfriend is a game designer and she designed some CircleCI logo stickers, but they are made out of walnut, and she uses a laser cutter to make them. And they have like a little pasta strainer that's on the top of the, the little circle CI to make it look like a little kid's hard hat that they would go steal from the kitchen when they're playing war or something. But so these are that's laser awesome. cut, and They smell like burnt wood, which is really awesome. But they're designed to be laptop stickers. And so I hand those out to people that do a good job showing some kind of extra level paranoia or just keeping the ship tight.
2: Yeah, that's excellent actually. Like that's the most kind of a artisanal security reward uh, (laughs) kind of variant, I guess, that I've heard of. So, you know, that's awesome. uh, Yeah. Yeah, definitely very creative on it.
0: You know, we did one other thing last year when we put our, this is in service of kind of going public with security champions and making that something that people want to achieve. Last year when we had our big engineering and product offsite, we did it in Las Vegas and we hired a group called Avitao that has a secure code platform, like security engineering platform. And so we hired those people to fly out to Las Vegas and they led a four-hour capture the flag. And we had paired everybody in the engineering department according to their roles. Where the average of two people was an E3 or an E4. And so, like, we had our principal engineer with our one, you know, associate engineer. And we kind of made the middle ground even for all these pairs. And so, everybody was set up and did this thing live. And, you know, at the end, we had prizes. And one of our engineering managers is a hobbyist lock or a competitive lock picker. And so he brought a whole bunch of that gear from North Carolina and did this big workshop with lockpicking. So we definitely try and make it fun rather than a burden.
2: Yeah. No, that's excellent as well. So, you know, sort of good gamification, I guess, in that process, but sort of good education. Exactly. Um, So you mentioned before that you kind of, you referred to kind of compliance, right? And doing some of that work that you built there, how big a role did compliance play in kind of your agenda, right? Or in kind of the plans of what is it that you build and and maybe even like, you know, requiring some things from the rest of the org?
0: I'll be upfront and say it shaped almost everything that we did. The very first meeting that I had with Rob, when he promoted me to first security engineers, he sat there and said, you're doing a great job just handling all these security questionnaires and making on the fly decisions as a support engineer and I want to formalize that. And he said, Do you know what SOC 2 is? And I said, No, I've never heard of that before. And he said, Well, I want you to go out and find out about it because any big customer that we are going after asks about it. And he said, I'm not sure exactly what all it entails, but you should probably use that as a roadmap for most of your decisions. And so I went to an auditing firm at the I knew from my days being a PI and a certified fraud examiner, and they just sent me their spreadsheet of all their controls. And it was really interesting because on the one hand, some of it was a little dry, but on the other, reading through this list was so informative because there was not one bad thing on there that we shouldn't do. Like none of it seemed like a burden. I just looked at it and I thought, oh my God, if we actually did all of this, the whole place would operate so smoothly and customers would like that. Like now I really understand why some big customer asks if we have a SOC 2 type 2 report. Because if you do all this stuff, you've got a lot of redundancy built in to prevent bad things from happening. Or if they do happen, you know it instantly. So we started with some SOC 2 work, but then FedRAMP actually landed right in our laps where the federal government was creating this new program called FedRAMP Tailored, and they were trying to get an initial group of 10 high-flying Silicon Valley-type startups in it. And so they chose Slack, Zendesk, GitHub, and us, and a, a few others. And they basically fast-tracked us through that process. And I've heard that that costs like a half a million dollars if you want to go pay for it, but they paid for the entire thing. And so that was nothing that was really planned, but it was this opportunity that we just could not pass up.
2: And how much of a big leap, I mean, it sounds like a great opportunity to take advantage of, how big a leap was it from SOC 2, maybe even in relative terms, from like pre-SOC 2 where you just try to do what's right to SOC to FedRAMP, you know, how are these equal size jumps? You know, what would you say is the level of kind of effort or change?
0: So we did FedRAMP first and then SOC to, which is usually the opposite direction most yeah, people do it. Yeah, that's typically
2: the other way around, yeah.
0: But when the federal people were staying there saying, we want you to be, you know, hey, it's January, we want this to be completely done by September 30th, and we'll foot the bill. Sure. We gladly accepted it. It was bumpy for sure, because they were still figuring out what this FedRAMP tailored program really meant. Like the very first meeting that I had with them, they said, okay, we need a list of all your subcontractors and vendors and their FedRAMP number. And I kind of sat there quietly and I said, AWS and Google are two (laughs) of like 400 that we use. None of the other ones are FedRAMP authorized. Like that's the whole point of this program. Yeah, is to make this it's more to allow accessible. them
2: to be. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, and they said, "Well, that's not going to work." And I just said, "Well, I know you're the federal government, but I'm just telling you the reality is no one has this because the burden is so high to get into your program, you know." And so they came back a few weeks later and they said okay, that's fine. We're going to hold our nose a little bit on this, but every one of the vendors has to be SOC2 and ISO certified. And I said, I'm going to say it again. Yeah. Almost none of them are going to have that. And so there was all this hand wringing, you know, that was like January of that year. Then there was all this hand wringing around, Well, can they do this? And I think the reality is they had to accept that because GitHub and Slack and everybody else that they were bringing into this was in the exact same position. And so there was a fair amount of back and forth with the federal government getting up to speed on what was and wasn't in scope. So, you know, that was one of the harder parts I would say initially, but because we only had like 130 people at that time, the CTO and I could make decisions and say, we're going to do something and just do it. There weren't a lot of moving parts in the company. And so I think that made it relatively painless just because we weren't trying to do this with 900 people. Yep. Sock 2 was harder because of that.
2: Sock 2, because there were more people in the company to kind of change their behaviors. Yeah. So when you think about these jumps, I guess another kind of angle, how much of the effort was software? You had to build stuff into the product and change it versus, you know, kind of processes and people and wavy kind of ratios, right?
0: Yeah. There wasn't a lot of software process. I would say for FedRAMP again, just given the nature of our product, we did a lot of the good behavior right out of the gate. There was no big re-architecture situation. You know, we didn't have to start encrypting a whole bunch of stuff that we hadn't been encrypting. You know, there wasn't anything that fundamental, but it was really more around setting up some maybe basic security practices. You know, we did vulnerability management kind of with an asterisk next to it. But when the FedRAMP auditor was here, he wanted to see everything we scanned. How soon did we patch it? He wanted reports and he wanted it in spreadsheets. And so it was really more about setting up like monitoring and being able to verify that and have somebody look at it and know that we were going to have an auditor in here looking at it going forward.
2: Okay. I think oftentimes for many companies that's an encouraging statement because the there's this concern of the unknown, you know, like I'm going to do SOC 2, I'm going to do, you know, FedRAMP. Each of them there's the whole fear of the unknown above and beyond the practice itself. So it's kind of good insight, right, to sort of hear that it's it was less around the software granted you you might have had a slightly more solid foundation than some others but it's less around sort of the software and kind of code changes that you need. And it's more around formalizing how you approach, you know, how you access data, how you track, you know, what happened and audit it. So it's a little bit less, I guess, artisanal, to use a word, that yeah. it is before. So how, um, maybe like one more question on compliance before we move on, which is, do you feel like how much of these compliance or percentage roughly of like SOC 2 or FedRAMP would you have rather not do like today when you look at this? You know what percentage of the work you do which is like you know just like necessary evil because you know you have to suck it up to be compliant versus things that you actually think are good security practices that you should be doing.
0: What percentage?
2: Well, just is it a lot? Is it a little?
0: Yeah, you know. Again, I think some of the I have to give that in two answers. I would say for SOC two, there's really nothing in that framework that i find disagreeable and i actually really think it makes our product safer for customers to use it makes circle ci a better place to work i think like an example of that it requires annual performance reviews for every person in the company and that wasn't happening before you know like i went two years without a performance review and i don't really care but i know that that's not a great way to manage people people perform best when they have regular and consistent and truthful feedback. And so if you know that they're getting that quarterly and annually, you know that people are going to be doing a better job and they're going to be feeling like their work matters and is on target. And that just makes for a better place to work. Now I know in HR, that's been a lot of toil and I'm sure even though I like that, they probably view it as a real hassle. But again, to me, that's part of building a really secure company and not it's a just good a forcing
2: function. Yeah,
0: some of the FedRAMP stuff is a little archaic. I would say you know we have to do these quarterly inventories of all of our assets, and you know we run our own Mac fleet and have well over a hundred Mac machines that we administer and, and everything, but. That's a very small percentage of our whole company. And so we basically just have this spreadsheet that has no IP addresses or anything in it because they're just Amazon, you know, but we have to do that every quarter. And so there's a fair amount of old practices, I would say, in FedRAMP that just don't really seem that relevant, but it's part of doing business with them.
2: Indeed. Sometimes you do need to sort of absorb some of that cost. I think we had three topics, you know, so far, and I think all three are interesting. You know, from your journey to security, to kind of you know the way you structure things in circle, to this whole kind of compliance narrative. I think uh, we're kind of going along anyway, but I want to make sure that I uh, touch on one thing, which is you're actually the co-founder of Security. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correct, Security, which is about sort of you know like women's insecurity. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That sounds like a great initiative.
0: So that very first meeting that I went to at OWASP. I sat down next to this big burly guy wearing all black and he had all these DEF CON patches and everything. And he, you know, his head was the size of a bowling ball and it was all bald. I mean, he looked as menacing as they come, but he was this super cuddly guy named Matt Torbin. I mean like that's who I sat down at, at my very first OWASP meetup. And we just became friends. And so he was a, a front end developer at RSA who really wanted to get into security. And so he made this big leap kind of at the same time that I did to switch over to security. And so he started working at a company as a security engineer. And I think he was their first one. And when they wanted to hire another one, all the candidates were just white men. And he was frustrated by the talent pool because diversity and inclusivity was really important to him based on kind of his background and his history. And so he was telling like the head of hiring over there, I think that the company is lookout. And he told him, he said, you know, if I could just get a room full of 10 women who came out of boot camps and teach them how to use burp suite over the course of about 10 hours, I would probably hire one of them. Like, they would have enough skills to get going to handle what we need here. And so they said, well, why don't we just do that? And so they organized this little 10 person hacker day where he showed about 10 women how to use, I think it was burp suite and they wound up hiring one of them. And so he was telling me about that and it was like, dang, man, why did not you let me know about that? You know, cause like I used to do a lot of mentoring through something called mission bit where I would go into public high schools here in San Francisco and teach JavaScript to low-income students. And so we just started talking about it. And there was a recruiting company that just focuses exclusively on security engineers who had been recruiting me. And I said, hey, I don't want a job somewhere, but are you guys interested in trying to build out like a little workshop that would just help train women into security engineers? And so that turned into a full-day event with 200 or 250 attendees. We had a bunch of people from HackerOne teach a full day on Burp Suite, you know, and a whole bunch of that stuff. And we've now had five of them. We've had three in San Francisco, one in Boston, one in Toronto, and we've got a couple of more scheduled this year.
2: That's excellent. That's a like a great story creative thinking and fundamental kind of initiative from it do you keep track like do you have like a a slack for kind of all the uh, alumni of this program or we do yeah
0: we have a dedicated slack slack group to it the day of security and anybody who's gone and attended gets to be in there we have a job board and we have like a mentoring system in there and we're really trying to build it into a community more than just a workshop at this point. We've also started branching out into doing every other month meetups that are called Day of Security Presents, and those are all led by women. Like I think the one that's coming up in a couple of weeks, I just looked at that. There are four speakers and all four of them are women security engineers. So this is really about giving women a platform and an opportunity to get out and become security leaders.
2: That's excellent. Well, that's awesome. And, you know, love the initiative of it. And we'll definitely post a link to uh, uh, dayofsecurity.com on sort of the podcast notes. Thank you. Hopefully kind of encourage sort of those women's listening or encourage everybody listening to tell, you know, sort of women around that you think they might find it interesting to try those out. Sounds greatly valuable to them.
0: It's been really valuable. And it's probably one of the most rewarding things that I've been involved at. You know the last one that we had was right down the street here from circle c i It was at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and I think there were four hundred people at it and you know, having gone to Defcon and some of these things, it was amazing standing there the morning of registration, you know everybody's handing out the little wristbands and the lanyards and the bags and all this stuff and it was just one hundred percent women walking in. It was the most un security conference. I've yeah, ever been Massively
2: to. different experience than what you get at a security event.
0: Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow, that's amazing. So, Ted, this has been excellent. Before I let you go, you know, I do like to ask every guest coming on the show one question, which is, if you have one kind of pet peeve or one piece of advice or something like that that you'd like to tell a team looking to kind of level up their security foo, what would that bit of advice be?
0: Make security fun. It is fun. I think Almost everybody that I've ever met likes to know about the bad side of behavior in one way or another. The accountant really likes to read about financial embezzlement stories or the HR people know some incredible blowups that have happened, you know, and people like to talk about this. And I think it's utilizing that instinct that everybody in every team has and kind of keeping it light and fun is, I think, the best thing to
2: have. Yeah, well, oh, that's excellent advice. You know, like, I definitely follow it and I think it's great, great advice to keep people engaged, right? And yeah. sort of uh, see a bit of security that's not just like risk management and the likes. That's great advice. Ted, this has been excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on to the show. Thank you, Guy. And thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you join us for the next one. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening to The Secure Developer. That's all we have time for today. For additional episodes and full transcriptions, visit mydevsecops.io. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or get involved in the community, you can also find us on Twitter at, at mydevsecops. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes if you enjoyed today's episode. Bye for now.